Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. It's a magic mix Okay, magic It's your hell And well, that's fixed It's a magic mix Okay, magic It's your hell And well, that's fixed Hi, it's Kate Magic I'm back on Soho Radio with another episode of The Magic Mix. Today, my guest is Sally Gross. She's going to be talking about her new book, Can Music Make You Sick? We're going to be discussing mental health in the music industry. Really looking forward to the conversation. We're going to start off with the track Mercury in Retrograde. I don't know if you've noticed, but it is Mercury in Retrograde. Sally, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. You were saying you usually spend a lot of time in Soho, but not so much this year. Not so much this year, no, not since March. So it's very nice to be back. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about your work and what you do. Well, um, my name's Sally Ann Gross, and I'm the course leader of the Masters in Music Business Management at the University of Westminster. I'm also a business affairs consultant uh, for a record label in Paris, Yabasta Records and Science and Melody, the home of Gautam Project and Philippe Cohen-Salal. Um, I've been a music manager and A&R, a major record label back in the 90s. Um, and I've done music law. I've pretty much done everything from selling records out the back of my little mini I used to drive into town and sell records at Black Market and things. Uh, you know, white labels that we kept in the kitchen because we ran a ran a record label from the kitchen um, with, you know, four kids running around. Uh, so it was pretty insane. And we had a little recording studio at the top of the house where uh, my partner, Matty Skylab, and Howie B made Skylab number one in the, in the studio. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've yeah, I've basically worked in the music industry and around musicians and designers and artists my whole life. Uh, in fact, my father was a photographer, and his brother was a photographer and a filmmaker, and another brother was an animator, and one of my sisters was an animator. So I think that my whole life has been immersed in creative work, one way or another. But music has really been the vehicle with which I've shaped my life. And, uh, yeah, three of my, my sons work in work and with music even now, and my daughter works with music in a more philosophical and historical fashion as a, as a researcher, PhD student. But, yeah, 
It's a family business. Mm. So we have to shout out Paul, Paul Martin, <laughs> and also Rahel, both yeah. of whom have been guests on the show and both of whom was like, you have to connect, you have to connect because the whole theme of this show is health and creativity and how do artists look after their health and I think I had Paul on the show 2018 well and Rahel I think they were both 2018 and he was telling me about your work then and I was so like this is exactly we're on the same page so I think you know I want to hear from you but I, I feel like you know our interest sprang from a similar place in that you know my main job is working with health you know I'm a health educator but most of my friends are musicians, DJs, um, and just kind of putting those two things together and looking at, wow, this is a really stressful job. It's really hard to stay healthy and just, you know, kind of seeing firsthand the things people did or didn't do, you know, the, the ways they were successful or not successful and looking after themselves. And it became a real passion of mine, a real fascination to... Um, yeah, just to really kind of look at this because I've, like I say, I feel like it's it's a really stressful thing and it's just really not understood. But but you're you're helping us understand it, right? This is your whole work is to look at what it really means to be an artist, especially in this current climate, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not. I'm I'm looking at well, number one, I've written this book uh, with my co-researcher, Dr. George Musgrave, who's also a rapper, right? It goes under the name of Context, and he was signed to Sony and Warner Brothers and has, you know, been through the whole system. And he still does music, but uh, maybe not so much now, as he's really an academic and teaches with me at Westminster, but also at Goldsmiths. Um, And, yeah, through my musical network and through the things that I had been thinking. So I started, I actually kind of wrote the title or the idea on a piece of paper on a train because I do a lot of writing when I'm travelling around. And, um, yeah, it's just the, the time I get to think, you know. And I had this thought in my head when I, I saw people around me, not only musicians but people working in the music industry really, as you say, so stressed and, you know, it's a, complica- it's a complex area to work in. You're managing so many different things, whether you're an artist or a manager or a record company person or a digital PR person or whatever. Everybody was already kind of working 24-7. The kind of working 24-7 thing sort of happened in a way invisibly, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I call those the digital changes. And I think they happened in kind of ways that, they happened out of our desire to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. They happened out of our passion. But they also happened in the way that technology trains us. You know, I'm very interested in the way that we adapt to new tra- technologies, but almost in a way like they, you know, so when I look down at young people nowadays and they're moving their thumbs really fast, <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, I, I was never so aware of my thumbs, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, we've got thumbs, but... I never thought they'd type, you know. So I'm very interested in that relationship. So that was one relationship that I was interested in and concerned about. Then another area of interest, all of which I think are overlapping, was the psychology of it. I was very interested in the, the kind of psychodynamics of creativity, you know, in that, we, that it enthralls us, you know, or that when we're in the zone we forget about anything else, you know our lovers, our children, you know, it's like it's all all enveloping in that way. And and then 
I wondered about coming out of that, you know, is going in and coming out and those transitionary periods, which I think are very um, much a characteristic of creative lives, you know, almost, you know, how you'd call them feedback loops, but they're also thing, they're also really practices, you know, when you go in, you have these, these big moments. And for those artists that can get on stage, sometimes I think, you know, from the recording studio to the stage is another, you know, you could be on the radio and then you're going to be live and then you're going to be in front of a big audience and, and it grows and grows, you know, that kind of thing. And that desire grows. And then the other feelings that you get, you know, and I've, I've been on tour with many artists where I've seen them about to go out on a big stage and I've seen them full of fear, absolutely full of fear petrified you know almost emotionless not able to move and I thought well this is the moment this is you know this is the zone you you and and that stops them and so this strange um paradoxical relationship between wanting to be out there and the vulnerability of being out there or you know and how it impacts on us on our on our psychology so I was kind of looking at it in all these different ways trying to add it up in some way mm. you know trying to work out what was going on and and of course the thread that that was in all of this was music and then you know instead I just kind of thought well nobody would ever ask a negative question of music right. you know and that just isn't it's a real taboo and it still is a real taboo and musicians still say that and also of course in our research all the musicians say that it's not the music, you know, it's the, it's the industry, it's the trying mm. to earn money out of it. Mm. And I absolutely uh, think that a lot of our work and a lot of the work of the book looks at the systemic relationship between musical work and musical experiences and the structures of the industry and how that plays out for musicians. And because I think it was that was really important to us. Okay, well, just that topic alone we can talk about for two hours but let's play a track next what, uh, what do you want to start with what do you want to play first let's start with Bjork so beautiful Bjork is there a reason you chose that one particularly uh, yes because it's so emotional, that song, in so many ways that it really makes me think about the emotional labour that musicians perform mm. for us mm. and how they, you know, like I, I remember the very first time I heard that song, I was driving because I'd got, I, I used to drive up up and down England, as you do, and I put it on and it came on on the speakers and the strings come in and it just takes you away and I thought you know at the end I was like driving away from my office and my how how music does that carries mm. you into a new space and and the the lyrics that the the things that it evokes for you but it's also that 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 moving of your emotional state that these people do for you mm. you know that's that you know it, Björk, that this track I've used it so many times in moments of great sadness in my life in moments when I've just wanted to wallow in that sadness or I wanted to be in that place that you it, you know the great musicians I think and the ones that 
really um, that we in our own personal life and, and it is subjective of course who are the great ones to us who are the ones that move us but what they do is they move our emotional state and that that is an area of work I was very interested in when I'm speaking to people who we're asking them to perform emotional labor for us so right. that maybe in our daily work we're not having to be wow. so emotional you know we can't we can't have you know, a whole country of people being as emotional as that. What would what would we get done? You know, mm. so instead, the way we live as humans, we, you know, we are avoidant or we compartmentalize or you know, culture evolves places in which we can be jubilant, we can be ecstatic. You know, grieving rituals around grieving are organized emotional outlets. You know, and you see them culturally from anthropology to. You know, you see them definitely everywhere. Yeah. You know what? So what? You know what's grieving like in COVID? We've seen how people are really struggling with the idea that their rituals of death would be interfered with, and within our rituals of death, music plays a very, very large part. And within our rituals of breaking up, with our rituals mm -hmm. of birth, and you know, we music is put to use. It, it's one of the things that I, I really find difficult and. Uh, a bit annoying about when people refer to music as this kind of ethereal, immaterial thing. And I'm like, well, no, actually, it's a really useful thing that mm. we use all the time. It's like food. It is. That's what yes. I was just going to say. Yeah, those are my two passions, music and food. It's absolutely an essential part mm. of what we need to be functioning in, in as humans and our part of really essential part of our human communication and yeah i i get i get annoyed when people don't think it's useful because i think it's i think it's a utilitarian art mm. well it's one of my questions is that i ask people is you know how necessary as a musician how necessary is music to your mental health and and i've realized through asking the question that it's 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 essential it's not an optional thing it is you know the more i talk, have these conversations the more i talk to people music and health creativity and health it's all the same thing really to be able to have that outlet like you're saying you we couldn't that you can't separate them at the end of the day i don't think well they're, absolutely they're very they're very very attached but i think that in industrial processes which is what many of the structures of the music industry are they're industrial processes right so we've taken something that come you know out the, the changing use of music within society is very significant and very under under recognized i would say unless you know you're a media scholar or a musicologist or an anthropologist but in the daily lives of most people they don't think about the changing use of music you kind of take it for granted and I'm listening to music on my headphones on a train. Yeah, well, you know, when I was a kid, people couldn't listen to music on a train. You know, so you have to have lived a bit to, to see those mm. those changes. But as they happen, we we adapt to them very quickly. Again, this is another thing that I think is about the seductiveness of techno technology. And so I think that, that our changing uses of music and where music music's ritual value, which is what I was talking about a little bit earlier where they're so so important and key that the musical practices that we have as 
consumers of music versus the makers of music. So for me, one of the things in our investigation, for me and George, was to look at how the consumption of music, which everyone goes, oh, it's great, you know, it's all free, you get so much of it, you can have as much as you like. What we were interested in was how that felt to musicians when, you know, in some ways one, there are, you know, people talk about um, streaming cannibalizing music, you know, it eats music, like so, you know, it's cannibalistic, you know, that you can't see that in a good way, it just uses it up really, really quickly and it lessens things value and what is the value of music and streaming? Well, we can see that the, that that's, you know, it's difficult to assess what that value is. So for me, one of those things was, and for George as well, it was very important that we got to speak to musicians that were working now about how it felt to make music in this area which we call abundant, in, in this abundance of music. There's music's everywhere. You can't get away from it. You, and every musician is very, very attuned to that. Whereas, you know, most music lovers might walk around not thinking about yeah, that so much. Sure. But when you're a music maker, you're really, really aware of that. So we really wanted to dig deep into how that felt because that is most definitely a huge change for musicians, mm. you know. And when people say to me, oh, it's always been like that, it's just like it hasn't. <laughs> you know, I get really fed up trying to explain to people, you know, it really wasn't always like that. You know, some of us went to the shop on a Saturday to buy a record yes. and we saved up our money to get, you know, and then we got to listen to the radio maybe if the parents went out. Yes. And it, that, that's that sort of idea of it being everywhere around you all the time, available, free, you don't really know what you're paying for, what you're not. That's very, very new. And it's very, very different to be a musician in that mm. in that moment, I think. Well, and also DJs like John Peel or Giles, George Pearson, like you would record their shows because if you didn't listen to them, there was no other way to hear that music. You couldn't just tune mm. into NTS or Soho Radio. Or yes. <laughs> you had to catch that show. There was no playback. <laughs> no, and I, I literally have several memories of, uh, one of my favourite John Peel discoveries was a guy who signed to Rough Trade called Jeffrey Lewis. And I was driving down the M1 and I was nearly home. And I've got four small children, right, so I need to get home. But they, ha they had this live session of this guy who comes out of the New York neo-folk scene or whatever. And I'd never heard it. And it, the song was Chelsea Hotel. And it was incredible. So I just carried on driving. <laughs> I just didn't go home because I couldn't bear the thought of stopping. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, terrible mother. It was, yeah, obviously, it was like past midnight, but I just kept, I drove round the North Circular several <laughs> times so that I could get the whole of the live session because it was amazing. And, yeah, I literally ran, I actually rang Rough Trade the next day because I was so excited. I just thought he was amazing. And, of course... It's different. It's different now to making those discoveries. You know, it's yes. a, a different way of. Um, but absolutely, that that kind of thing where there would be people that you would listen to because they would have secrets you didn't yes. know. You yes. know, and they would pass on those secrets, yes. and then you would have them, and you could share them. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. So, can you speak on what you found from talking to people? Like, how do they feel about this abundance of? Well, the impact of the abundance of music is very real. It's very real, and it's very real in terms of people in areas that 
you know, in areas that, you know, on the one hand, I think one of the things about the abundance and the place of abundance is also this terrible kind of confusion about the fact that it's possible now to get any music you like. So if you put out your track on SoundCloud or you upload it here or Giles plays it once or someone plays it on NTS or someone's heard it and that could be it. And that 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 one play or the two plays or the, don't add up in the end. They don't that you can't get that ball rolling. Right. You can't get the moss to add to the stone yeah. so that it, it gathers more moss. Yeah, so yeah. and the artists working in those areas, particularly left field or you know trying to do more more non mainstream stuff. I mean, absolutely, it's the same in the pop world because. Uh, you can just, you know, just thousands of people doing that too. But I think what we found from talking to people was this moment of, you know, the, the, the kind of, well, if this happens, and they all talked about that, oh, yeah, and then I got this, and it's this one thing, and you hold on, because there's so much emphasis on holding on to your dream and following your dream and believing in yourself and believing in your music, that this kind of endless, endless, like, if I stop believing, what becomes of me? And abundance really, really influences. Digital, well, digital capabilities really emphasize, emphasize the, the possibility but deny the absolute reality of what that means because that possibility is happening for maybe right so it's, it's in a way it's closer but at the same time it's further yes it's a strangely paradoxical relationship that people are trying to deal with on a daily basis and similarly um that in the same way with women in music and i think this is an interesting thing because this is a recurrent thing but um people often say you know oh you know, there aren't any women producers and there aren't women. But that's not my experience of researching women. And in our research, we had as many women as we had men, right, anyway. And so we, we, we did that by interrupting the actual norm of the music industry where women are represented by under 18%, you know. Um, but we talked to as many women as we did men. But actually, when you go out and start to look for women musicians or connect with groups of women, disc women and siren sounds, there are hundreds of women making music. But what they're not getting is recognition, right? So they're in a kind of, you know, there we see the intersection of race and gender mm. amplify these impossibilities. At the same time, it's inviting them as possibilities, you know, but anyone can put their track up and you can connect and if you go on social media and you make your Instagram better and if you do this and you and these endless things that people have to do, which all take time. And, the, the you know, the really important key factor about making music is that music happens in time and it uses up our time. And for women, time was a thing that they spoke about very early in every one of our conversation. It was very interesting to see how time was very present for women you know, it was present for men too, but in a different way, further down. Mm. But women were, they really put time, you know, time running out, getting older, mm. you know, right. and, and what they looked like, how their bodies were, mm. what their shape they were in. 
and so this the whole kind of structures of the music industry it seemed were taking place on their mm. bodily form mm. so when we talk about work being you know something you embody for women it was like it was always like they were wow. doubly embodying right. it right. right because their bodies in themselves revealed a possibility of the end where for men they had other ways of mm. dodging it or not confronting it in a way but mm. for women it was a kind of ever present mm. you know we had a woman that we spoke to that was a violinist classical violinist and she went to paris age 21 to audition for an orchestra and they told her she was too old wow. <laughs> you know and it was like whoa okay and we had another woman who um was being measured by her management company so that she didn't, she she had to be a size eight because wow. of the clothes that she was getting. Wow. Yeah. And then you just kind of, you know that. I mean, we know those things happen, and I've experienced that hundreds of times in the music industry, you know, with women artists talking to record companies, whatever, and we know that about K-pop, and we know that about boy bands. We know about this kind of, the ways in which the industry demands a shape of a body. But when you meet the people that that's happening to and ask them how they feel about it, it's a very different thing, you know, and that's one of the things that was so important for us in our book that we spoke to and heard the voices of the people that this happens to. What does this feel like, you know? And I always say that, that it's really important and urgent that we ask people how their work feels to them, mm. particularly when we put forward this work as being, oh, this is going to be some of the best work you're going to do, right? So... If you don't get to be a musician, then what, what are we actually saying about work right now? And, and of course now, you know, we couldn't have imagined a pandemic. We couldn't have imagined lockdown. But now, really, what does work mean? Who's going to do it? Mm. Who's going to do it and for whom, mm. you know? And where is the place of music in that? And I think the place of music is very, very important in terms of caring, mm. in terms of... Mm imagining a future in terms of bringing us together mm. all the useful things mm. that music can do mm. we need it you mm. know so it's really kind of it's very urgent right mm. now <laughs> let's talk more about that but what track do you want to play next well this is neil young and um the needle and the damage done I did have a question for you, but what you're saying was so interesting. I didn't even get to my first question, but I want to carry on from what you were saying and something that I'm really interested in and something that's been on my mind a lot this year. And I haven't actually had many conversations about it with people that have anything to say, but I feel like you will, is the difference between the culture and the industry. And so that's what we're seeing at the moment, isn't it? It's like, the music industry has been like executed basically by this government and yet the culture will survive so is that something you think about in your work and the something you referenced earlier as well is that tension between commodification and culture like you know how do you survive how do you make a living and how do you actually then progress with your personal evolution as an artist and and contribute something new like those are that's a tension right Oh, absolutely. It's attention, but also it's very, very central to our uh, research and the ideas that we are investigating in the book 
is this idea that music cannot be reduced to its economic value. Its economic value is only one part of music's value, right? And it just can't reduce music mm. to an economic value al alone because it, it's not sufficient. It's not a way of thinking about music that really works, either for musicians or for the for the general public or for the government because, you know, one of the things that I really, you know, that really thought about and looked into when I was investigating the, the possibility that music could make you sick was how much in, in, the, in, in, part, in the past music has been imagined to make you sick, for example, or to, or to reduce your, your moral standing in uh -huh, one way or uh -huh, another. Uh -huh. So the Greeks, for example were concerned that certain melodies would make would make men into women right not just not just merely <laughs> feminize them but potentially transform them into women and so this idea that music has had this power and that the power can be transformatory exists in all kinds of places so therefore it exists as possibly damaging. So we, you know, we totally all know that rock and roll was the devil's music, uh -huh. yeah? So that there are good musics that will uplift us morally. I mean, piano at one point in, um, you know, not even that long ago, in the 19th, early 19th century, playing the piano was thought to make women quite hysterical. <laughs> And certain kinds of music and rhythms were understood to particularly transform the sexual behaviour of Caucasian and European women, right? So there was always, you know, they, with all the t terrible racial science yeah. of, you know, all the awful stuff exists and music is very aligned to that, you know, so that there'll be rhythms. And we can see that totally now. It plays out with, in high culture, the difference between high culture and popular culture and folk music and... You know, uh, we particularly see it in in drill and certain types of music that come out of cultures that the, that um, society deems to be not not valuable or also anti-establishment. You know, music's always played that. You know, rave music, utterly. You know, was utterly abhorrent to certain classes of English society and was extremely Acid. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Acid, exactly. So, you know, and also I, I think that the relationship, I, I, I will say this because we, because The Needle and the Damage Done was the track preceding, but also the relationship between drug experiences and music and the possibility that one types of drugs enhance musical experiences and that these things, the idea of intoxication, whether it's alcoholic, whether it's religious, whether it's aesthetic, aesthetic sexual intoxication, whatever, mm. music is seen to be embedded in many of those rituals and many of those experiences. And again, um, maybe some of those things could just go too far. Maybe they're just not, you know, maybe every psychedelic experience could potentially go wrong. You know, I'm not, I'm not making moral judgments about this. I, far from it. I just wanted to keep a clear head and go down all these possibilities and say, is it possible? Is this possible? You know, obviously, I don't think that music can change your gender. <laughs> I do want to say that. There's lots of things I don't think music can do. But I did want to kind of be, be open to the possibility of some of these things or some of these practices. at certainly being addictive, which I, you know, I, I, I definitely think there's there is an element of that in there. Um, 
so I think, yeah, I think music as a cultural, music as a mode of communication that is embedded in multitudes of cultural experiences in different cultures as well. That, that can't be got rid of by governments, <laughs> you know, that we know, you know. So the idea of music being mobilised for resistance, music being mobilised to keep us strong in, in health care against abominational behaviours of governments and fascists and whatever, you know. Um, music has played a very strong part in that resistance and that rebuilding and that and in self-care but it's also played a really heavy part in the mobilization of armies and violence and you know you can't extract that you know you can't extract the way music is also used in very ideological forms um and as propaganda and in really fascistic ways so music's not innocent because music doesn't stand outside of human behaviors you know and when you're interviewing um musicians or you know the musicians that you know how consciously do you think they think about that that tension how consciously do you think they engage it in the ways that you're talking about oh some of them do yeah some of them totally yeah some of them totally some of them don't think about it <laughs> i think some you know I, and i i also think that um you know, I was asked by a DJ the other day whether I thought that it was different within different genres, and I and I thought and I said, yeah, absolutely, of course, I think it's different within different genres. I think there will be different areas of musical experiences where people will want to be going, and will want to be as open as possible, and to be hearing and to be listening. And there'll be others where they won't. They'll be doing the opposite. You know, they'll they you know they may be just wanting to hear. It just like this, you know. I just want these. I want these four beats, and I want this rhythm, and I want that, and I don't want anything else, you know. And that's another way of using music to protect you or close you down, or you know, as a as a kind of blinkers. You know, we know that's what we do with culture. You know, I only read books like this, or I only look at art like this, and I only listen to music like that. And um, I mean, of course, there are people like that. But they don't tend to be musicians, but, you know, some musicians are more open than others. Just But that also connects into what you were talking about earlier with the abundance. Is It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's like, you know, as someone who's so passionate about music, it's almost a daily experience of overwhelm that there's so much music to listen to. So that, that connects into that, right? Yeah, that I, and, I, and I really... I really experienced that in my life. You know, I've really experienced that in my life, particularly when um, I was very much working in around the major label system and with a partner who was doing A&R. And it was difficult to, you know, we obviously we listened to a lot of music and we listened to music that hadn't been yet released. And we were like, you know, listening to things that we were like, oh, you know, um, yeah, I could tell you a funny Spice Girl. Well, I heard the Spice Girls before it was released, right? And I was like, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> Zig as a girl. Did you hear Zig as a girl? Yeah, and I was just like, no. <laughs> that was my instant. It was in the kitchen of our house, and I was just like, no, turn that off. That's horrible. Well, to be fair, there's a lot of people that would agree with you, so. 
But it's so funny. My kids always hold that up as my as one of my worst moments. I don't think it was my worst. I mean, that, you know, that's how I felt. I was never, I wasn't a big fan, but there were obviously lots of people that were. But I think that that's um, that that thing of being when you're in music and you're you're a, of you're a DJ or you're a manager and making music and you're you're kind of you know what 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 am I going to play? It's what people are going to like, you know. Because so it's that that kind of knowing what people other people are going to like and is it going to work and um, that kind of thing. You know, I really 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 got to a point where I just wanted to have my relationship with music back mm. without that mm. I just wanted to like what I liked I just want to enjoy it I just wanted to have a break from that you know and that was in the 2000s I know when that was I know when it was and I just it was already too much I was feeling mm. like it was you know by 2006 I literally wrote an essay called State of Emergency and that was in 2006 right so it's like 14 years ago so for maybe a lot of people that rigidity that you're talking about is like a necessary way of dealing with the kind of infinite yeah overload yeah yeah Yeah, totally and 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 also fear because it it's very hard to like wake up in the morning now i feel it's like which which machine do i turn on before (laughs) i'm gonna have a a meltdown (laughs) you know like how am i gonna deal with today's sets of numbers and information and how am I just going to connect to just a little bit of joy in my life, a little bit of moment? You know, I just go down the garden and feed my chickens and like, oh, I love my chickens so much. <laughs> they so just lay eggs. <laughs> yeah. Do you sing to your chickens though? <laughs> I talk chicken now. <laughs> so can we go back to the question I had right at the beginning, which you started on, was you were talking about the systemic nature of the the I don't know is damage too strong a word but that how people how artists struggle because of how the system is set up and they you know they well they're at the bottom of the system let's let's just be frank about that and I think you know what's really interesting about this moment and with the broken record campaign that's going on at the moment and stuff you know various people are really doing some really urgent work you know this state of emergency has called to arms many many a fighter Uh people are standing up which is of course amazing and wonderful um but in such extreme circumstances we've we've really had to Uh we've seen that happen and and i think what's really been interesting about the conversations is that people are now really tuning into the idea of the systemic nature of the position of artists and songwriters within the music industry structures, right? And so I think that was part, you know, that's been part of our research for several years now. And for us, it, it obviously is very much part of what we're saying in the book. And um, so the, because artists, you know, when you become a superstar, your power position obviously changes and things still but things still, you can still be Kanye West and be, be upset that you don't own your masters. You can, that, you know, there are so many things, and people are like, oh, you can't feel sorry for the superstars because they're the superstars. And it's not a question of feeling sorry for them. It's a question of recognizing how the how the industry structured and how it rewards creators, who in the end 
are the people that made this stuff, right? <laughs> so that we have to think about number one. You know, it brings up it brings up many many things about competition, competition, and hyper competitive industries are designed to have one winner. But how do we reward them? How do we think about what the the what's called equitable remuneration in a legal sense, which is how you know how um, artists and performers and violinists got to have money from recorded music uh -huh. was through systems was through lawmaking through statute uh -huh. they are political things you know someone i heard someone debating this the other day and goes oh we don't want to get too political and i was like no we do actually yes we do we need to change the law right. we need to change the law of how um people are rewarded in for the work that they do how they're paid in in terms of you know are we going to review who owns their master rights these are you know big and political questions uh -huh. but in the streaming world um and how people understand how they get rewarded for streaming without live without the live music industry which has always been you know not always but has in the most recent times been used to be like well don't worry you can play live uh -huh. You know, without actually realizing who really does make money from playing live, right? Well, now you can't play live, so now we see, right? Now we're now we're in a really urgent situation, right? right. right? You've removed, you know, the knife edge was the live music industry. Right. Now we've removed it, and you're all on free fall, right? Right. So, in this free falling position, we need to think about how we pay for music, right? So the idea of music being free and freely available to everyone at all time via ad supported or whatever. It's like in some ways I'd say, great. Yeah. I like the idea of free music. I don't think we can, we can't go back to, we can't, you know, build up the walls again. That's not going to work, but we're going to have to think about different ways of remunerating artists, right? People getting paid for what they do. We're going to have to think about who gets paid. Who would we choose to be paid, right? And this is one of the things that abundance brings about. You know, if, if oh, we don't want to stop anybody making music. Well, we don't want to stop any. Actually, to be honest, we couldn't stop anybody from making music unless we had, like, the music police or the creator. <laughs> you know, that's like, it's just not going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if we think so. We have had, obviously, rave music. We had the Beats police, you know. So, yeah, but I, I mean, it, back in 2006, I actually did do this because I've got it in my in my diary with my students, where I set them a project where recorded, recording music was now made illegal. This was in 2006, where I was like, you can perform music as much as you like, but you can't record any of it. So you have... And, and the proposition behind this was an idea of keeping musicians working and you know we've seen what's happened to music musicians before by the advent of recorded music and we saw it when the talkies were introduced and you know so we've seen we've seen vast amounts of musicians lose work at moments when different technologies came into play and the reason we have live music on the radio now, on the BBC particularly, comes from a decision that was made between the Musicians' Union and the Broadcasting Society about something called uh, needle time. So in the beginning, it allowed the BBC to play records. That's what the needle time was. Mm. 
because the other time you had to have live musicians in the room playing right, music, right. right? So for those of us that have grown up on records and recorded music, that all sounds crazy, but if we want to have lots of musicians now who get paid for playing music, they have to have places to play. So we have to think about how, you know, we have to think about are small venues actually going to become community centres that are funded by the local council? Will musicians get, or people play, how much will they get paid? Should we introduce a universal basic income so that people want, that are doing creative work can contribute to society in that way and then top up their incomes in other ways? You know, I mean, these are big questions, mm -hmm. but we cannot assume that every musician that manages to get a song on Spotify will somehow get some money next year that will keep them alive. Yeah, Actually, yeah. what we can assume is that it won't happen and they won't be kept alive, right? And so the idea that we can have hundreds of thousands of musicians may actually need thinking about because nothing should stop or prevent anyone from playing music and playing music with your friends and playing music by yourself and learning music is a really really good thing we've got plenty of evidence to show it is but how are we going to pay play pay for the people that will be called or deemed to be the professional musicians uh -huh. right uh -huh. in our book we look at the work of a french econo economist called jacques Attali, who basically predicted that by this time actually very 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 few people would be paid to be musicians and he couldn't have you know, he. I mean, he's become. When I be, I was interested in his work, it was actually before he kind of then came into vogue a few years later. He came back into vogue. Not that he wasn't known. He was known, but he kind of, you know, he kind of disappeared. But then people kind of started to bring him back because he was, he was predicting that electronic music. And he was much more interested because he's much more interested in classical music. He's kind of much more of a kind of high art person. Uh -huh. Um, and he's coming in for a particular, what I would call a judo-Christian tradition, very Western, very North. Um, but his, ide his ideas of what he was predicting was that by this time, by 2020, very, very, very few wow. people would actually pe be paid right. to play music, right. right? Well, in some ways what he said has come true, but it hasn't... It, 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 he's also... Um, certainly in his book, he really undervalues what I call the the overall value of music. Not you know because he's uh -huh. he's an economist, uh -huh. so he's just looking at it from this economic uh -huh. position. So for me, that number one, that's not enough anyway. That well, never was enough. It's not enough, you know. But we, what is really interesting about um, looking at musicians as a group of workers, which is one of the things that we we're doing and both George and I have together written about the gig economy and looking at musicians as kind of a leading workforce in, in the gig economy and looking at what happens to them. So what we can see, which is what why Richie Sunak's supposed quote the other day was so absolutely absurd, was that actually many, many of the musicians that we have, even, even the professional musicians, do other jobs. Right. You know, they teach, they run workshops, uh -huh. they, you know, they're session musicians, uh -huh. they have their own bands, they play with uh -huh. other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this yeah. kind of idea that you would do multiple jobs, 
has never been, um, has no, you know, it's not new. It's been there for, all, you know, musicians are highly flexible people. Yeah, they do a lot yeah, of things to yeah. make money. I had a yeah. friend on recently, Dave, Dave Core, and we were working out that he had about eight different hats. I was yeah. really over. I knew he did a few things, but once we broke it down, I was really overwhelmed just thinking about, wow, he's running a label, he plays in other people's bands, he's got his own band, he's also a producer, he's also a teacher, like, and there was a few other things in there, a DJ, he's a D, like, that's so much for one brain to jump between all those different things. Yeah. It's very, I mean, that's the thing, that's one of the things that, and, and again, the thing that we cover in our book is the impl implications of all the other unseen work that musicians do because social media and digitization has brought them into the realm of the of the marketing yourself mm. you know so maintaining your instagram doing your social media making your mini videos doing this doing that it, and it all takes time mm. and these are all new jobs and new roles mm. and new time consuming things for musicians mm. and you're also expected to do it to a very high standard <laughs> yes <laughs> which maybe isn't your forte but yes. you've got to like produce a high class image and write something funny and absolutely and and so all of these things become you know very very they, they're really stressful you know they're really stressful and the musicians that we talked to talked about how stressful it was doing them. And then they also talked about how stressful it was looking at other people's. And when I was in, I bumped into DJ Dai in Bristol one morning. Well, I was down in Bristol, weirdly, um, and at see a friend of mine. And we were in a cafe. We, we ran into Dai. And Dai was, and, I, and he, he knew about the research. He knew about the first report. And he said to me, oh, it's nonsense. You know, we don't, we, we were just not buying into that in Bristol. You know, you don't want to be a musician, blah, blah, blah. And then he, and then in the discussion, it was really funny because Dyes are actually a funny bloke. And so it was, the conversation was a kind of hilarious breakfast conversation. But in it, he also said, anyway, he said, the, you know, the best thing is never look at other people's social media. And then he described how he didn't look at it. And I was like, well, that's a strategy, isn't it? Like, you're telling me that my research is all wrong and it isn't stressful. Well, then you're also admitting right, it is right, stressful right. because you you turn it off and don't look yeah, at it. that is my strategy. I deleted my Instagram a few weeks ago. <laughs> yes, because it's, it, it, it is a strategy to avoid the stress that it induces. So you're being told, do it, because this is what you need to do. And then you do it and it makes you very, very stressful. And then to, to help yourself, you, you don't, you stop doing it and so this this making yourself responsible for your career and the situation and your is so embedded mm. in the machinery mm. of the music industry when actually what we're saying is it's systemic practices of not only the music in it but the music industry combined with the marketing is industries of social media that are really just collecting your data they want you all there just to collect mm. your data. They don't care about you. Facebook doesn't care whether mm. you meet your aunt or your long lost mm. friend or and so these these things are you know, they are very complicated and they are difficult for for us mere mortals <laughs> to to work through. But we are at a point now when we have to be asking these really hard yeah. questions about 
what 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 will our future look like and what yeah. do we want it to look like uh-huh. let's play something else what have you got for us next is it Gwen Guthrie uh-huh. I think nothing going on but <laughs> yes COVID-19 tune nothing going on by the rent a sentiment I think most of us can identify with um so you know I'm so so fascinated by everything you're saying and you know as someone who I guess primarily I identify as a writer you know it, it really applies to well particularly book deals and you know writing books and but all kinds of writing now in the way that's really devalued commercially um do do you find that the work you're doing does apply across the board in that way well we've certainly had um lots of responsive responses positive responses to our first our preliminary reports um that we did for help musicians um and then after you know we were invited to speak at various different events and conferences where there were writers publishers people from the film music industry from the film industry actors um and i think that across the creative industries you know particularly i mean film with writing um that they share these characteristics of you know that there's always that possibility that i may be you know, I may be the next big mm. one. I may be the Adele, or I might be writing Harry Potter mm. too. Or there's, you know, there's always that hope. Mm. So it's that that way in which uh, I think neoliberalism throws mm. up these these great winners that we all might just be able to be mm. the winner. Well, it's know? what you're saying at the beginning, isn't it? It's the necessity of self belief. That could be actually delusional, <laughs> but you can't take that risk of admitting that. <laughs> yes, but also you can also see that self-belief is something that actually we all need, uh-huh. right? So I think what's interesting about these things, and I, I do think this is interesting, is the role that belief plays in our lives. You know, and one of the things that I always I always talk about this thing called the secular void, which. Um, you know, I just kind of just just talking about it in the terms of what you know that what I think um, when we moved away from religious activities that were you know common, and in a way Jacques Attali does you know to be fair he does talk about that in some senses, and people have talked about it before, but I very much saw very much felt that um, the kind of what I call the secular void where people don't have religious beliefs and you know maybe certain kinds of um, liberal values would be seen as non-religious, whatever. But as humans, we want to believe in things. You know, we have a huge need to believe in things. And I think it's useful as well, you know, not uh, um, saying there's anything wrong with that, but also the way in which we have our own rituals, you know. So when my kids were little and I used to always be at Glastonbury because I'd be working, you know, mainly I was working at Glastonbury. I don't think I've ever been there for fun, although I've had fun whilst there. Okay, it's a different thing. But um, the headmistress of my children's school once called me in because she was very annoyed that I took the children out of school 
for Glastonbury and I said that it was part of my religious uh, year. <laughs> it was part of my religious beliefs and part of my calendar. And uh, she looked very annoyed at me and I just said, oh, okay, I'm gonna, it's part, I have to continue to do it. But, you know, and it was funny. Um, she, she actually did make a stink about it, but it was part of my religion. You know, it's part of our religious, isn't it? It's part of the, the world that we right, live in, that, right. that we, the, we go to these festivals because that's where we come together and, and we feel yeah. re-energised and reconnected with like-minded people who believe in what we hope are the same things, right? So that, that really important thing... So the the role that belief plays and, and the way that belief has been in some ways weaponized in neoliberalism and this idea that we should all be an entrepreneur, because I, I think that's really, really changed, you know, and in the 80s, like everybody I knew wanted to be a musician or an artist, but mostly because they didn't want to work, uh-huh. you know, and there was a real, you know, you didn't want to be in the system, you know, and there were other ways of living, you know, when my children were young, I lived on benefits in a council flat and... You know, I I have no problem saying that, and I've no, you know, that, and and we had, we lived our life, you know, un un necessarily un- interfered with by the social security system or whatever, and out of that grew a record label, and out of that grew DJs, and out of that grew yeah, a life, and yeah. we all know that that history happened, yeah. but now with you know the years of austerity and the you know completely complete attack on our social security system or whatever we not whatever but all of these things have had a massive impact on how we live right and so for all people wanting to partake in creative um, activity and wanting to do those things what we see everywhere is that those courses you know being you know if you want to write and not be a creative writing courses hugely popular uh-huh. music courses hugely popular acting hugely these things are hugely popular without you know we start our book with a quote from Angela MacRobbie who said you know how many how many cultural workers Mm. can any society Mm. have Mm. right and that is a big question no one's really answering Mm. that certainly a very difficult question to answer when we have no support Mm. structures Mm. for these people But 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 it's really important that we we do want to tell our stories and we mm. do want to sing and dance. And mm. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's why I feel your work is so important because people maybe look at those roles and think they're the easy... I guess this is why I'm so passionate about sharing this information, one of the reasons, because people look at those roles and think it's the dream and it's the easy option and actually the reality of it is it's really fucking hard work. It's really not easy. <laughs> it's not really not easy. And, and, and any... You know any um, any kind of commitment to to work creative work. You know writing is not easy. None of it's easy. You know that it may be enjoyable or that it's enjoyable at different points. Um, it's absorbing. You know it's difficult sometimes to think. You know I found uh, writing the book, and as George will attest, poor George, uh, who really had to put up with me. It was like you know it was horrible. It was horrible. I found it really, uh, yeah, not not enjoyable. Like it was fun, you know. I, you know, I love writing if I'm writing to somebody or I'm writing for myself. But when it was like, saying, oh, someone's going to publish this, it was like horrible. Like, couldn't bear it. It was unbearable. Um, but I think that, and I also think that with musical experiences, when people are enjoying, you know, people all our all the people that we interviewed loved playing. 
they all had some moment about talking some absolutely uh -huh. amazing moment of playing with other music and with other musicians and connecting with an audience so that that thing that you know you don't you write a book because you want someone to read it mm. it is you know this is really part part very very much part of our communication mm. system i write this book because i want someone to read it i write this book because i want to say i was here you know there's a multitude of reasons mm. why we do it and nobody should not do it and none of our work is saying that you shouldn't do it our work is asking how can we live better richer creative lives mm. how are we going to get through that and how are we going to how are we going to imagine the new normal mm. or the new futures mm. and those things are super super important and and really you know just so much to the fore now who's going to be in there how many more women how many more people mm. of color how, you know how are we going to recognize our rich black music history that it, that is also mm. british you know mm. um, I, I think what i'm understanding from listening to you is that actually by asking these questions it's not just benefiting the artists it's benefiting all of us right because it's helping us to understand our humanity better on so many levels when we because we separate out artists right and i think this is something you say right at the beginning of the book is we kind of make them special but 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 you know by by drawing that in into the heart of the culture then we all we all kind of understand ourselves better and what our what our needs are like you say to live better to be happy yeah to, and to recognize the work that that artists perform for us i think it's also really important not to take for granted that work you know and you know it is it, 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 we talk a lot about things being co-produced nowadays mm -hmm. you know like how we're involved like the comments and all when you're you, you put something up and then you're looking for someone to comment and this kind of co-production um and and the relationship between the audience and the musician all these things but really a great piece of music is usually made by a group group of musicians without the audience there necessarily you know like you don't need you know you need mm. to have these people that are just great at what they do and they do amazing things and they need time and they need space and they don't necessarily need to be working on instagram mm. to make their instagram mm. or their social media or you know obviously there are different generations and there'll be different relationships but i still think that that certainly from the people that we spoke to that it was important to understand how much of their time is being consumed mm. by these things that aren't music mm. or aren't being a writer or aren't being a filmmaker but are about you know totally doing all this other stuff totally. and, and and how do you live well like that how yeah. do you you know i dream of a boring sunday <laughs> i dream of a boring sunday <laughs> Maybe you get one for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play another check. What have you got next? I think it's Waterfalls TLC. TLC. <laughs> Why did you pick that one? Because I thought it was really, um, I always was really struck by the lyrics of don't go chasing waterfalls, stick to the rivers and 
lakes that you're used to. And I, I, I remember at the time being really struck by um, that that um, there was that message of believing in yourself, but don't go chasing ra- waterfalls. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. it was contradictory uh-huh. and also a bit, it was interesting in a way that like it's a pop song from, you know, a, you know that that album was so amazing anyway and that, those three and then of course involves a tragic death yeah. and loss as well but it it was also that kind of thing don't go chasing waterfalls there was something in it that and i and i i listened to it a lot that song and i listened to it a lot um when i was writing the book and when i was thinking about that thing that 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 can music make you sick and this idea that you know you if you go out on these adventures and you leave the familiar paths, which in a way we demand of all our artists that they should, we kind of demand that they should go out there for us. Yeah. You know, we're, we'll yeah. stay here and we'll stay safe. I'll listen to your song. You go out there. You be, you be adventurous and I'll see what happens. Yeah. I'll live vicariously. You know, I won't do that, but... I need you to do that. Yeah. I need you to report back from the edge. Yeah. And there was something in this song that I just just struck me that it was a strange a strange contradiction, um, but also the hope of a of you of a mother of a sister of a lover. Like don't go, don't don't hurt yourself, mm-hmm. even though you know they will and they, you know, they might. So yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it's one of my favourites, um, and 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 it ha- and it has a lot of meant uh, and means a lot to me in terms of how we think about how people experience this kind of work because there is a demand to give yourself over to it, no matter what you know. It's only for the brave, or you know, there's a kind of macho ness around music industries that always has that, that I always somehow found very difficult like not almost nihilistic like there was a part of that that I wasn't interested in uh but there was another part where I you know I did I am always interested in going to see taking ideas to as far as you can with them see you know so I cut there's kind of an, an idea about inquiry mm-hmm. But another idea about being utterly, you know, not being utterly irresponsible, and mm-hmm. that means how you use people up. So I'm always interested in how we live better, uh-huh. you know, and that part of it. I don't, I don't mean that we should all be safe and in cotton wool, and you know, I think we need to be able to feel and experience, you know. Um, and I think that great music does that, you know. As I say, I think it is emotional labour in that way not it, it does emotional work mm. for for the listener as well and it uses up the emotions of the people making it and they have to practice that emotional connection which may well lead them to being emotionally more open and sensitive possibly we don't really know these things there's lots of areas that we don't really know and people kind of make guess about but they are but we want that from them you know so we want that so you know, we were talking a little bit about this idea of the the sacrifice that I think maybe art that maybe audiences or cultures, society wants artists to go out there. They want us to experience. We want to hear about people's pain so that we can learn from it, 
or find comfort that it's not us, but also learn from mm -hmm. it. You know, so it is almost like this thing of letting others sacrifice themselves for our learning uh -huh. or for our enjoyment. And yeah, I just think some of those things were encapsulated in that little wee pop song there. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that does bring me to my last question, which is, you know, having done all this research, you must have come up with ways that you think we could do it better. Like what, what are your solutions? What conclusions, what positive conclusions are you drawing from all this? Well, the, I would say the, the positive conclusions, the positive things that we that came out of asking the question, can music make you sick, is that we don't really think it's the music that makes you sick, right? So I feel like that is a positive to understand that music is a good thing but definitely within that what we have discovered is that this work is difficult and that these people need support and that we benefit from the work that they do and we have to think about that right so i think that in in a, in a very in a very um uh kind of Way, the way in which practical way we address that and certainly help musicians who commissioned the research address that was they set up a helpline for um, musicians that were experiencing any kind of emotional distress. So you can phone that helpline 24. It's called Music Minds Matter and you can find it on the Help Musicians website. And it's a 24-hour helpline and they have additional services that they can provide in, at this moment in the pandemic, help musicians have been doing a lot of work, and they've had, they, they've got emergency. They just they've just finished a round of emergency help. Um, so there was the helpline. There was the development psychotherapists looking at ways in which to create uh, um, models of therapeutic help for people that are working in these fields. Another thing that we've looked at and talked about is this idea of how do we find how do we fund musicians and that's a you know a more difficult question because it also begs the question of who will define who musicians are that need funding right, right? and that's more difficult because obviously the commercial music industry who i have to say have also responded very well to this mental health crisis and have uh, uh, brought in all kinds of different HR practices at work, uh, including mental health first aiders and um, mental health groups and, and w wanting to consider the mental health of the people that work at record companies as well as the mental health of musicians. So that's been taken really seriously. The Music Managers Forum produced a guide and are taking it very seriously. The live music industry have also produced guides and there's people writing new books. Um, so lots of work is going on in that space. Um, but of course, underlying all that is that we have to understand that mental health as, you know, and, and again, you know, the pandemic has just put all of this right to the fore, is a huge area of, that, of our well-being. You know, and we have to, mental health is massively underfunded in, under the NHS and we really have to take it much more seriously because it certainly really is apparent to be in a crisis point. And we have to think about how people with emotional distress, and all of us will experience emotional distress at one point in our lives, yeah. So it's a, 
It's how our emotional distress or our anxiety or depression or other mental health conditions develop into things that we can no longer live our lives. So how do we live our lives better has to do... There, there isn't one simple solution, right? That, that's, that's, that's unfortunately the case. There isn't one simple solution. But we have to have um, a look at the benefit system. We have to look at support for the self-employed. Because if you, you know, most musicians and, and creative workers are self-employed. So we really do have to look at of co-ops and non-profit organisations that are just set up to right. service local communities. Right. right, with funding for with, the artists. Yes, as well. Mm. Yeah, you know, community centres that provide food, mm. that mm. are food distribution mm. centres, you know, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the Halion Centre in Crouch End used to be... I mean, they, in the 70s, there were lots of them. There was a big one on Archway Road that used to be a squat up. That, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a squat up. There used to be a squat where there were bands would play. Yeah. But it was a whole food collective downstairs and it was a venue, it was a place. Yeah, people yeah. lived and worked. And I think we're yeah. going to have to think a lot more along those lines. I used to be part of, I uh, forget, uh, Pullins Estate. On the Woolworth Road, that was yeah. the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. kind of have to go back there. Sally, we're running out of time. What's your last track you want to play? It's John Martin, May You Never. <laughs> 